The overwhelming evidence shows that the negative impacts associated with overconsumption outweigh any of the benefits associated with green innovation. From my perspective, this push for green consumerism has created an illusion of sorts of progress that distracts from like the urgent structural changes. And welcome back to Unpacking Beauty. This podcast is all about unpacking the science, marketing, and trends in the beauty space. My name is Kelly Driscoll. I am the creator and host, and I'm also a skincare enthusiast on YouTube. In my years of creating content and reviewing products, I've just come across so many topics and questions that I myself cannot unpack. And so I wanted to create a show where I can go to the experts to have all of my burning questions and yours too answered by the experts. Today's topic is sustainability, which is a huge topic, right? Not only in our society is it a pressing and urgent uh, topic, but it is also a huge topic in the beauty industry as well. And it really it fills every facet of cosmetics and beauty from the marketing to trends to even how products are being formulated and the ingredients that are being chosen. But when you want to make a good choice that is going to be kinder to the earth, it can actually be really confusing to navigate the beauty space and make the right choices. So what is sustainability exactly? In 1987, the United Nations Brundtland Commission defined sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Sustainability is something that is important to so many of us, but as I mentioned, navigating the beauty space and making good choices can be really difficult when you're coming up against the tactics of green consumerism. And so today I really wanted to unpack what is green consumerism? Consumerism. How can we recognize it? And why is green consumerism truly at odds with true sustainability efforts? So today I am so thrilled to welcome Jen Novakovich to the podcast. She is a cosmetic chemist, a science communicator, and the creator and host of the EcoWell podcast. Jen is incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about sustainability efforts in the beauty space. Not only has she worked behind the scenes with indie brands to help formulate products, but she's also currently working on her PhD, focusing in on the topic of sustainability in cosmetics. So I'm so excited to have her on the show today to ask her, why is green consumerism hurting sustainability? Jen Novakovich, thank you so much for joining me on Unpacking Beauty. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's uh, been a busy day of running around between I have a conference this Sunday and I'm in uh, doing a PhD right now. So I have classes and building a house with my husband. <laughs> so lots on the go. But I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Building a house is like super exciting, but also like extremely stressful too. Yes. So that's <laughs> awesome that you are keeping up and keeping busy with everything while in that process. 
Well, like I said, thank you so much for joining me on Unpacking Beauty. I, um, I'm i a big fan of your work, of your podcast, and all of the free resources that you put out, um, you know, um, beauty science communication so that us consumers can really understand what goes on beyond the label of our products. For those who are not familiar with your work or with your podcast, I'd love it if you would just like introduce yourself, uh, talk a little bit about your work and what it's all about. Yeah, so uh, my name is Jen. I am a cosmetic scientist. Uh, I started out as a formulation chemist. I started my business actually doing formulation development for predominantly indie brands. Uh, But then I shifted pretty quickly to science communication. I, I continue to do formulation work up until actually last year, but I found that I I just liked science communication a lot more. Um, I'm still doing technical consulting for consulting work, but science communication is my jam. I'm really passionate about it. So my platform, I've kind of built it to be a science communication platform dedicated to sharing resources resources that would otherwise be behind closed doors. And that includes like experts within brands toxicologists traditionally didn't didn't come out to talk to social media or um the press or so on and so forth so giving a platform to scientists within the industry and i do that through i have a podcast of my own uh, it's a little into the weeds so if you like that maybe maybe you'll like the podcast but if you don't i mean like maybe not for you <laughs> i also host <laughs> e-conferences again into the weeds there are eight hour conferences uh, so i do that because um industry conferences tend to be very expensive geographically inaccessible to many people and i also find that um the vetting of speakers could be better so i try to do my own, uh, improve all of that, and I make it all free. So that's part of the work that I do. And I'm also very active on Instagram. Amazing. Yeah, you are really bringing all that information and kind of like, I think, opening the doors a little bit to the science behind cosmetics. Um, And like you said, maybe a little bit in the weeds, but for those of us who are really interested to know more and more and more, it is an amazing resource and free, which I, I super appreciate and love. So I asked you on today because I really wanted to talk about green consumerism in the cosmetic space, because this is really one of the hottest, not only what I say marketing trends, but I think it's something that is really driving um, consumers to buy products. It's it's um, a value that people do um, hold. They want to make sure that the choices that they're making are going to have a lesser impact on the world. And um, green consumerism is actually something that is at odds with sustainability efforts. This is a big part of your work. You have um, you know, talked about it so much. You've done a ton of research into it. You've offered a lot of resources about it. And you have really opened up my mind about what what it actually means to be sustainable in the cosmetics industry, um, not only for brands that are, you know, creating products, but also for consumers. So I would love to hear what exactly is green consumerism, right? What do we mean when we say that? And why is it at odds with sustainability? Well, consumers want to purchase green products. There's so many stats. I don't have any offhand, but so many stats to show that consumers are willing to spend more for products that they 
perceive to be socially and environmentally superior. The issue is <laughs> sometimes what they feel is socially or environmentally superior isn't isn't <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of greenwashing um companies know that consumers want to purchase green and so there are many companies trying to do the right thing but there are, are also many companies taking shortcuts the issue with a lack of i guess adequate governance for regulating green claims, I would say, globally. I don't think there is a region that has really tackled this issue sufficiently. I would say, like, the EU and UK is probably ahead, but I think they also still have a long way to go. So, yeah, the whole thing is that consumers want to purchase green. Brands, companies know this. And so there is, like, an incentive for companies to greenwash when there isn't good policy to to make them do something otherwise. And so you see green claims everywhere. So that's one side of it. And there's a lot more to unpack on that one side. Um, and this is actually what I'm studying for uh, my PhD. I'm really interested in this like misinformation, information, uncertainty dynamic and how this is all kind of impacting business decisions within the cosmetics industry. Uh, there's a lot going on, a lot with policy, a lot with corporate sustainability management. But then the other side of that is that per capita consumerism is the most impactful thing that we do societally for the environment. But like, there's this whole idea that we should support green with our dollars. And this is probably something a lot of your listeners have heard. So outside of the fact that a lot of what people feel is green is greenwashed, the overwhelming evidence shows that the negative impacts associated with overconsumption outweigh any of the benefits associated with green innovation. From my perspective, this push for green consumerism has created an illusion of sorts of progress that distracts from like the urgent structural changes, such as like the implementation of uh, um, carbon pricing, for example, or a shift from the GDP. So structural changes that are needed to actually address sustainable development goals. Uh, so yeah, that's like the, I'll stop talking. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. It's right? really complicated. It is a really it's it's and it's almost like this hamster wheel at least from the perspective of you know when you're looking to buy something is that you want to you want to make a good choice um you know we're we're informed enough we know that climate change is real we know that there are major issues with sustainability um we're informed on that and we want to do our part and there is a way like um you know, profits above else, right? But like, um, it's it feels kind of insidious the way that it is marketed towards us to kind of keep us on this hamster wheel of, oh, I want to make this choice. I'll spend a little bit money. I'll make the green choice. And then I feel good about that. So then I'm going to kind of keep doing that. I'm going to kind of keep, you know, going in towards those products that are claiming that they're clean, that they're green, that they are better for the environment, that they're natural, whatever it is that's drawing you in. It kind of keeps you on this cycle. And whether they intend to or not, 
not by using that type of marketing that makes us feel good when we make that choice and makes us feel like we are making a difference and we continue that behavior, whether they mean it or not, I do believe that it, it kind of shields our eyes and, and pulls the veil over a little bit to, as you're saying, that there are much bigger issues here at play. And one of the biggest ones is over consumerism, right? We are over consuming. Um, and that is actually what's having the biggest uh, impact of all with a lot of other things too. Um, but that like consumerism and sustainability, just those two words are at odds with each other. And it's really hard to see through all of that when you are constantly in this cycle of feel good purchases and feel good purchases. Um, it's, it's hard to push that noise away, I think. Yeah. And I would just say, like, this sounds really confusing, everything that we were just talking about. And I'm sure the listener at home is thinking like, oh, my gosh, what, what can I do? The greenest product that you, um, the, the sorry, the greenest purchase you make is the one that you don't because otherwise you're just buying more and more and that's consumption. Whether it's yeah. a shampoo product with all these dirty ingredients and you know, the challenge with the like information landscape is many of these dirty ingredients are actually more, or sorry, should I say they're actually less environmentally impactful than their greener alternatives which is so confusing so like just make it easy for yourself just like purchase less that's a good place to start yeah I think when anybody's ever getting into anything science related to um, really anything but I think especially in the beauty space is that the simplest explanation or the simplest reasoning is probably not true. Um, there's usually a lot more layers to it. And I think that that can turn people away sometimes from science because it's hard to wrap your brain around it. But I think it is easy enough to understand that like, yeah, the greenest purchase that we make is the one that we're, you know, that we're not purchasing that the thing that we're not um, consuming. Um, now, speaking of, you know, beauty products and making good choices, something um, that I think we know now at this point is misinformation, but maybe we don't really know why, um, is the whole plastics debate. You know, plastics are absolutely demonized and they certainly have contributed to, to um, problems within, um, you know, sustainability for sure. But I hear this a lot, especially with beauty products is like, well, it needs to come in glass packaging because glass is more sustainable. It's more renewable. It's better for the environment than plastic is. And um, this is a lot of people are actually basing their choices um, off of this type of thinking. Um, I'm guessing it's a lot more complicated than just this is good and this is bad because it's science, right? Um, but I would love to to kind of dive into that and maybe settle this debate once and for all about um, glass versus plastic when it comes to packaging. I guess I would say that there is no panacea for sustainable packaging because every packaging option has its pros and cons mm. sometimes glass isn't actually possible for specific formulations so um, maybe you need like a squeeze tube for the formulation to uh, work um, like maybe an example could be a toothpaste tube now like uh, the person at home might be thinking that could go in glass um it wouldn't okay 
So I suppose you could put it in glass, but <laughs> the other issue is the amount of material that you would have to use for it. Uh, I guess also like consumer expectations from that. So like you as a consumer, would you like that? You know, most people are used to the tube. Um, but also then we start to think about like the transportation impacts. Um, so the carbon emissions associated with transporting a product that requires more material for the packaging that equals more weight sometimes, often. In this case, yes, more weight. And so that may mean more carbon emissions. So there was an LCA looking at eco alternatives, a comparative one. So if we stopped using all plastic in favor of eco alternatives, and here I'm talking about glass, paper, and aluminum, we would need 3.6 times the material, 2.2 times the energy with an increase of about 2.7 times the carbon dioxide emissions. There's also, like, obviously there are significant challenges with plastic, with recycling infrastructure. Mm. And it's also like a regional issue. Some recycling um, facilities are able to recycle certain plastics. Others aren't. But the same can be said about glass. Um, some, mm. Like I think some people may be surprised to hear that not every recycling facility in the United States recycles glass. Um, certain plastics can be more recyclable within those facilities. And so the resources required to produce glass, especially if it's not going to be recycled, are actually significantly more than the resources required to produce glass. And like, again, re remember, you need more of the glass compared to plastics. An advantage is that you can have such lightweight, um, low material um, packages. All this is to say is it's really complicated. There are serious issues with plastic, um, serious issues with how we currently recycle across the board. And I would say a lot of this consumption is one but also our model for our recycling systems in that it's like profit driven and so yeah. for recycling to happen it has to be profitable and it hasn't now there are more regulations coming forth in the united states requiring specific and actually like around the world requiring specific percentages of post-consumer recycled plastic in the packaging. So that can potentially in the future shift that dynamic for plastic recycling to be more profitable. <laughs> and like, yeah, there's so many different types of plastics. Not every plastic has the same recyclability. So like the onus is on consumers to understand what recycling uh, symbols on their packages mean. And also like to be aware of their municipal facilities, what's actually recyclable. Um, it yeah. varies. And so it could be worthwhile for you at home to contact your um, your waste management or recycling facility local to you to see what they do and do not recycle. You might be surprised 
Um, yeah, this is a really big topic, but I'll just come back to my initial point of like every every packaging option has its tro- uh, pros and cons. Sometimes yeah. plastic will be the more environmentally friendly option, the less impactful option, and sometimes it's not. So it's a case by case basis. And I would say like a red flag for anyone talking about this, like maybe they don't know enough to talk about it is when they make blanket statements and to say that one thing is better and this thing is bad it's always complex unfortunately but like my this seems really confusing so to make it less confusing contact your local municipal facility to see what they recycle and then also like take that like consumption theme from the last question to heart you don't need that many products use less but also be familiar with what your region is able to recycle it is when you dive into the topic of what can be recycled what's actually being recycled and the fact that just the i'm just speaking from you know being from the united states i think uh but I think it's probably true around the world. I think that the efforts for recycling programs have really failed. Um, And I think that they have been just kind of held up as this, like, well, we recycle. So we're doing what we're supposed to do. And that's how, I mean, for a long time, that's how I felt. I'm like, I put everything in the recycling. You know, I'm very good at separating everything out and I'll pull the, the cardboard off of the plastic backing and I'll make sure the cardboard goes into the recycling because I care so much. And then really diving into it and learning about how the system actually is failing <laughs> um it's really disheartening and i think that it it it's hard to wrap your head around it and it's it's hard to get excited about it you start to get cynical i think um and i th- i i feel that way a lot about uh packaging in general now there's some interesting things that i've been noticing um and i think like you said it's a case by case basis we'd really have to like look at um, how it's being created and and how the end user is disposing of the product at the end of the day. But there have been some interesting, I'd almost call them experiments with like um, paper packaging. I've noticed a lot, obviously it's plastic lined, but paper packaging and refillable um, skincare. And there's a lot of different ways that you can go about that. Like you send the product back and they refill it for you, which I think probably has its own issues there. Um, But I'm also just brands that are selling just refillable like cartridges and things. I would maybe chime in on that because this is like, there's so much complexity to this. Like, I think people maybe forget that like, for example, plastic bags were invented to um, alleviate the environmental um, impacts of paper bags. Because you know what? Paper is actually uh, pretty impactful, people forget, uh, because this was like maybe before the internet that all this happened when plastic bags were introduced. So we forget. But paper is not like the best material. And so then also something to think about is like by making packaging mixed is that package recyclable at the end of the day? Is that actually a benefit compared to okay. a monomaterial PET package, which probably would be more recyclable and also less impactful to produce? 
juice. Um, so like, I do see a lot of claims from packaging suppliers about like the we're using less plastic material and putting paper, but is that actually better? Please show me an else. Like this is me saying this mm-hmm. right now is to the packaging suppliers who make all these claims. Please show me um, a LCA with good boundaries, because this is another thing that I see a lot with packaging suppliers is they, I see this a lot with um, like bio-based packaging, for example, uh, like sugarcane packaging. Yeah. Where they, in the boundaries of their LCA, so LCA, this is a life cycle assessment. And so it shows the impacts that happens through a life cycle of a product. But how we understand that hinges on what we include in that study. So this is what we refer to as like the boundaries. So what are we actually thinking about when we're thinking about the specific impacts there? And so they just like, don't include agriculture and so like i have an issue with that because agriculture is uh, so i'm citing the ipbes um 2019 or 20 um report where they highlighted that the greatest impact for biodiversity loss was the expansion of agriculture so if you're just not going to include that for an agri-based product well that is problematic Uh, and then with the refillable um, systems that are in place um, sometimes they are rather heavy and so when you are shipping it back and forth what's the impact Um, there's a lot of unknowns there and I'm not sure I'm convinced that that is better than just having a lighter weight PET mono material package. Obviously there's variability depending on the municipality and the formulation, but I'm just like, I don't know about that. And then the refillable options for in stores, like the challenges are like, and this also is for the cartridge programs where you ship it back is like accessibility for your consumers and like, So, like, what is the cost associated with them shipping that uh, cartridge back to the supplier? What is the accessibility of them being in a region where they can access these refills in general, bring back the packages to make these systems work? And and so I think, like, a, a lost part of this conversation often is accessibility. But, like, if you want a system to actually have the impacts that you wanted to have your cons- your customers have to actually be able to use the systems and oftentimes they can't and and so this also is like super complicated because like the most sustainable package for a given product will vary from region to region based off of the infrastructure available to people and based off of like for example the stores i live in northern Ontario, where like we don't our our grocery store just burnt down like a month ago. We don't even have a grocery store. We have to drive out for groceries. <laughs> yeah, that's really sad. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we have a grocery store at some point. But like, you know what? I'm not gonna drive. I would have to drive like I think the closest one to me would be like almost three hours to get oh to us. A refillable yeah. location, a uh, 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 zero waste. Now, zero waste is like not a thing, but like one of these locations that offers these programs, not accessible yeah. to me. And 
I am not alone. I'm not the only one that doesn't live in a city. I would really love to to hear about how that cycle of information, misinformation, how that's actually harming sust- sustainability efforts in the long run. Um, I know, you know, the the whole reef safe sunscreen um debacle, maybe even if you want to call it that, um, is kind of uh, an outcome of this cycle of misinformation and um, so many people just hearing about reef safe and hearing about coral reef bleaching that to the point where Hawaii basically banned um, certain types of sunscreen filters without really strong good evidence. Um, I would love to hear, you know, how this amount of information and misinformation is really standing in the way of sustainability efforts. So there's a lot to your question. <laughs> so I'll try to I'm just asking all these hard <laughs> questions. Um, <laughs> everything yeah. is like not easy. <laughs> I guess just to step back to like, there's a lot of information out there. So this has been this phenomena is kind of coined as the infodemic, where there is so much noise, right and wrong. It's just like washing over us. And everything's getting more complicated too. Science is becoming less accessible because of all the complexity and everyone's getting so like specialized and separate, disparate. Obviously, there's interdisciplinary uh, interdisciplinarity uh, within that field, but like everyone's very specialized. We understand our thing, and there's lots more to the world. So there's lots of noise out there. It's really hard to know what's right and wrong with all of this information out there. The internet has certainly contributed to this um, with the rise of social media and has probably made it harder for us to figure out right from wrong especially with like the dynamics of social media with the algorithms in place and how they will show you information that essentially agrees with you so what happens is it's really easy to go down rabbit holes It's really easy to confirm whatever belief you have. You will find somebody else that agrees with you and you'll probably find a lot more people to make you feel like, oh, yeah, we're right. And then people get more separated, polarized. And and so then we're not talking to each other anymore. Um, And so the World Economic Forum has cited this dynamic misinformation and polarization as the core technological geopolitical risk globally. It's a really big issue for every sector from medicine. We look at all the misinformation with COVID-19 with, I mean, I don't, I'm not that, so I'll just maybe just like go on to cosmetics and go on to sustainable (laughs) development. I was going to give more examples, but it's like (laughs) all these other examples are just lost on me because all, oh, with like food security and all of that, I guess that kind of comes into sustainability. And then with sustainability and conservation efforts and how we're able to address climate change because all so polarized it's really hard to come together. And for some of these like greater issues like climate change, sustainable development, 
food security. We all need to kind of work together because they're really, really big, complicated. They're really, really big, complicated issues. Okay, so then how does this impact uh, sustainability? So here I will cite a few studies. One I'll start with is misplaced conservation. And this is rather new. Um, This was, um, I think it was first published in 2020 by uh, Adam Ford uh, from the University of Alberta Alberta and his team. Um, And so it looked at how misinformation and polarization were essentially working together to detract from sustainable development or potentially like directly harm biodiversity or conservation. So it was all around conservation. And so when people aren't able to work together, when people have the wrong information, sometimes they make the wrong decisions and then that might make things worse. And so there were a few examples in the study that I found really interesting. And I'll bring this back to the cosmetics industry as well with what you were talking about. This is a really long-winded answer to your question. But um, so one of the examples that the study highlighted, and this is actually kind of specific to me because it happened in my region, um, is people wanted to do something about the lowered populations of monarch butterflies in my region. And so out of all the best intentions in the world, they went and planted a bunch of milkweed. And, and so the issue is they had the wrong information. They planted the wrong milkweed and it ended up making the issue worse. And so if they had only planted the right milkweed, maybe they could have done something better, but that, directly harmed uh, conservation. Uh, The other issue is like when you spend really small budgets from conservation resources on things that don't make sense, then you no longer have that budget (laughs) to go and do more. Uh, Okay, so that is the topic of misplaced conservation. And I will give an example in cosmetics once I talk about the other topic, which is green nudging. And so... When people feel, oh, firstly, what's a green nudge? So green nudge is like a little nudge in the right direction, uh, a little tiny step forward in the right direction for sustainability, climate change, whatever. And so there has been more research coming forth, looking at green nudges, showing that when people feel like they've done the right thing, contributed, invested then they're less likely to do more. And so this is really uh, like um, problematic because like if people are doing the wrong things, then the right things just don't happen. And so so there was a study published, I think it was in 2019 by Hagman et al. I think it was in Nature where they looked at um, carbon pricing. And so carbon pricing is like one of those like most evidence informed strategies for, uh, to, for tackling climate change. Like we should do that. Um, but it's challenging. And so when easier, but less effective policy, a nudge came before a carbon tax, then the carbon tax was, or carbon pricing 
was well in this example is a carbon tax was less likely to get traction whereas if that effective policy came first the carbon tax before the nudge then it was more likely to be effective and so what this highlighted was that the order of policy implementation is really important when you do the wrong things based off of bad information first then the good thing with the right information is less likely to yeah. be effective okay so now coming to the um the coral reef stuff okay so so the bans in hawaii are based off of um some outlier data uh, i would say like predominantly by craig downs from a study that him and his team published in 2016 and he is quite active in the reef safe sunscreen space and i think that there might be maybe a, i won't say anything that might get me in trouble but i think there might be some other like uh incentives for him uh profit driven sure. incentives for him to put out this information yeah. but whatever to that for his study he put coral reefs coral coral in a bag with extreme a plastic bag no vent no uh water flow with it extreme exposure to uh, specific organic chemical sunscreen filters. And then under those conditions, they saw that the coral was bleached. Now, the issue is like that exposure scenario is not relevant to what is in nature. It was an outlier. Uh, I actually, I did a literature review on this on my master's and it was like, it was I have specific numbers, but I do not know them offhand. But it was like really <laughs> far out there for what they assumed was the. So, for example, the one of the filters that they were looking at, they assumed that there were more filter, more of that filter, which is a carbon-based filter, than the total carbon content close to the reef. So like it's not even their exposure scenario wasn't even possible. Uh, so right. but I had a specific number for that, but I do not remember. I do not know that offhand. Under the same unrealistic exposure scenarios used to demonstrate that organic chemical filters. And so organic is just that just means that there's carbon in the molecule. So that's why I keep saying organic chemical, because chemical is like not scientifically sound way to talk about filters because all of them are chemicals but under the same unrealistic exposure scenarios used to demonstrate that inorganic or mineral or the reef safe filters also cause um, coral bleaching but the body of evidence so there's been a lot of research into that and i would say the initial studies uh, Craig Downs and Donna Vero, I forget his name. It was in like 2008. Uh, it might have been 2009. Also unrealistic exposure scenarios. But those initial studies prompted a lot of research. And so since then, there's been a lot of research into this topic. And overwhelmingly, the evidence does not support the idea that sunscreen of any type is contributing to coral bleaching, but rather it's rising water temperatures. All the public feels like, oh, reef safe is a thing and chemical sunscreens are destroying coral reefs. It's these are these are the reasons why corals are bleaching. And it, it, 
um, parties have a seat with politicians as well who are passing bills to appease their constituents and their constituents want to see that they're doing the right thing and climate change the issue here is a lot harder to address so to make the to make it look like they're actually doing something they're putting forth these the bans that are thorough like they're not going to do anything they're also probably going to make products less safe and i say that by hmm. because for well sunscreens help protect against skin cancer by protecting against uv damage but that hinges on if people are using it and using it in the right amounts and so the issue with mineral sunscreens is not everyone likes it it causes white cast if you have a darker skin tone you will probably have especially of much darker skin tone have white cast issues and so people like that are very unlikely to use sunscreen regularly and in the right amounts sun protection requires that like compliance from consumers and so you're making it less safe for consumers because they're no, no longer using their sunscreens in the way that they should um okay so then like coming back to these themes in the literature about like misplaced conservation well clearly we're wasting our resources on all of these bans that don't make sense instead of actually addressing the issue so it's probably going to like we're wasting resources it's going to make it harder it's also polarizing society because people really feel that reef safe is a legitimate claim and then scientists feel another thing and so we're just getting further and further apart because of this dynamic and then coming back to that topic of like green nudging of like yeah it's going to be harder for the effective policy probably based off of the evidence we have to be put forth based off of this whole dynamic and so for you at home uh, listening to this, uh, the National Academies of Science, I think probably in light of all the noise about reef safety and sunscreen impacts, did a rather large review last year, or was it the year before? I think it was last year, um, looking at this topic. And so they like specifically highlighted his research as like, outlier wow this yeah. all the all the studies say this and then this one says this like outlier right um yeah uh and go into detail also about the methodology and there's actually been a few uh, meta-analyses at this point that have also kind of like critically appraised the methodology and other methodologies used in previous studies but suffice to say um he's poisoned the well but i feel like this the recent the recent National Academies uh, review will help kind of correct some of that. Probably another complicated, long, um, you know, kind of question <laughs> to unpack that I have for you is really all about um, marketing. I've heard you say this a few times on your podcast about how the marketing department is like the tail that wags the dog um, when it comes to formulation and um, how marketing really drives so many decisions within the cosmetics industry for better or for worse. And I've also heard you to re refer to it as kind of like this BS bandwagon. It's just this like cycle of marketing dictating the trends. And so then um, 
products are formulated that way, um, or, or they're marketed in a certain way, which, um, kind of creates these, um, these like situations where we get things like the EWG, um, where we get, um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of misinformation about cosmetics and we kind of almost start to, the marketing almost starts to kind of create this loop where you can't get out of it because profits above all all else, right? If somebody's going to buy something based on it being clean or green or plastic free or natural, um, we kind of get stuck in this cycle where it is a lot of BS and the logic is not there. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you're talking about that um, and some of the, maybe some of the bad outcomes, um, especially when it comes to sustainability that have occurred because marketing is dictating how products are made. Yeah. So I think that, well, fear sells for one. Yeah. And also consumer sentiment drives the industry, which is often led by marketing more than people realize messaging that's been put out there that often uses fear because it's a really effective marketing strategy. Um, People are more likely to click and share fearful content. Um, They're more likely to purchase products that they feel like an emotional connection to. And it might be around like, I'm trying to do something safe for my family and this company has told me all the other products are toxic and therefore I'm going to go for this safe product because I want to do right for my family. So I would say um, free from claims and fear marketing really kind of took off in the 90s. I would say free from claims kind of really took it off. And there was also this movement for natural and organic, and that kind of fell in with the food sector for what people wanted based off of the noise that was out there because consumers at this point still perceive these to be healthier and more environmentally friendly because we have this bias that if it's natural, it must be better for us and the environment. Well, that's not true. I could go into why that's not true, but it's not. It's complex. But marketers know that this is what consumers want. Know that fear sells. So yeah, free from claims started in the 90s, first with sulfate-free, then paraben-free. Consumers assume that the ingredients the products were free from must be bad. And so they started to gravitate towards products that started to make these claims Marketers saw that started to use more and more free from claims. And then there's also the rise of natural and organic in the early, well, I would say late in the 90s, 2000s. You still see it now. Um, And so marketers saw this, started marketing it to consumers. This is what consumers want. Around and around we go because consumers started to expect more of this. And then that gave room for NGOs like the EWG to come onto the stage. They reinforced the cycle, created a positive feedback loop until we've got like um, stores, retailers that have all these standards proclaiming that it's more environmentally or um, human friendly, safer for us, safer for the environment. Consumers see this. We want more and more and more. And there hasn't been 
adequate regulation to govern some of the claims that have been made to consumers about safety, about sustainability. And so this has just created this like vicious bandwagon. Um, There's a lot of misinformation and confusion about what's safe, what's not, what's sustainable, what's not, what does sustainable mean? (laughs) You know, we actually do have like scientifically sound ways to think about it. And it's often like a cop out from brands where they're like, oh, it's so complicated. This is what sustainability means to me. But, you know, like there are ways to think about it. It's a really nebulous topic, but there are ways to think about it and communicate it to consumers. Yeah. So, yeah, how has this impacted sustainability Uh, for the worse? Because now consumers have all these wants that aren't necessarily aligned with sustainability. Consumers want, for example, natural. They perceive that to be more sustainable. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. There are many examples to highlight this with many essential oils. They're quite intensive. Sometimes they can be the environmentally superior option. Oftentimes they are not. Uh, there is an issue with, um, with uh, a wild harvesting. Uh, so like just going out into the wild and picking stuff and how that impacts the biodiversity. It's quite yeah. significant and people just don't think about this. With, for example, uh, vitamins, so people feel like, oh, I want a natural vitamin C. That's going to be better. Vitamin C was developed to be made in a lab initially because it would have been way too intensive to source it from nature. And so right away, it's actually developed via biotech, but right away, we developed processes to make it environmentally and economically feasible. And so these wants for specific things there for naturality, not necessarily aligned. Sometimes natural is better. Sometimes it's not. Oftentimes it's not. But it is a case by case basis or all these assumptions around packaging. People have been told that they should use these products because people are making sustainability claims around them. But then like sometimes they're more impactful. I think a major issue here is that there hasn't been adequate regulation to ensure that companies aren't deceiving consumers. And so like, I'll give you an example, like the FTC publishes green guides every 10 years. The last one was published in 2012. It was supposed to be republished this past year, but it's it's still under revision. Uh, They're still, I think at this stage, still taking commentary from the public. Um, But initially what they said is like, you should not say this product is green. You should not make generalized sustainability claims because if you make a claim on a label, you have to substantiate it. And how are you going to substantiate that? What exactly do you mean by that? (laughs) And so, so when consumers feel that, then they're like, oh, this must be good for the environment for me to use. And like, you know what? It's not. Consumers are responsible stable those claims do not belong on packages and so what they wanted brands to do is like we have a lower emission by x percentage we are using uh, specifically recycled package if you make a sustainability claim they wanted you to be specific and they wanted you to prove it now this has been out for over 10 years 
but they don't have enforcement. And so that's the issue. Mm-hmm. And this is the issue everywhere is people can make these claims despite the fact that we know from like a regulatory point of view that it is a deceptive claim to say that your product is sustainable to say that your product is green to say that it is non-toxic was another uh, case that was highlighted in the green guides in 2012 that is a deceptive misleading claim but without being able to actually enforce it, companies will continue to do that. Uh, There probably will be more class action lawsuits and there has been class action lawsuits. And this is kind of the way in, in the United States, at least it goes when policy is kind of falling short, then all the litigious lawyers just like jump on brands, but there's so many brands making these claims. So I would hope that uh, when the FTC green guides are republished sometime in the near future, uh, there's some revision around the their ability to actually enforce so that it moves yeah. from guidelines. So right now it is guidelines to regulation. I think about like the clean at Sephora label and that just since day one, it has really driven me up the wall um, for a lot of reasons. But I think... You know, the biggest reason for me was like, well, everything that they're saying, like, oh, these products don't have these ingredients. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with these ingredients? So they're fine. Why does that like inherently make something clean and and not and make something else dirty? I don't understand what that that means. And just the words themselves to they they have an emotional um, weight that they carry clean uh, versus dirty. Right. But they don't actually when you really look at it and you really break it down, they don't actually mean anything um, or they can mean whatever you want them to mean. And it's not going to be the same across the board. And so this whole BS bandwagon is just making things more confusing um, instead of less. And I think you're absolutely right that it's it's doing a lot of harm because um, when we are confused, when we're polarized, when we're not um, coming together, we're not able to do anything. Nothing is going to happen um, if we can't come together. But there is a big section of people who absolutely are going to be drawn in by clean. There's a big section of people who are not. And if we can't break through, um, really, at the end of the day, unless we start to regulate these things, these terms, the marketing, and really start to um, – really force brands to be more specific greenwashing incentivizes more greenwashing Uh, Mm -hmm. so like when companies greenwash then it puts companies who are actually investing in good corporate sustainability strategies (laughs) at a disadvantage so then like why would people do that why wouldn't they just say what consumers want? Why wouldn't they just say what this person is saying and it's working for them? Why can't they do it? So this is the dynamic. So everyone just jumps on the bandwagon. I've had conversations with some of the larger companies who they didn't want to start saying free from, but when they didn't say free from X, Y, Z, when they didn't say this contains X percentage natural, these things that consumers want, that's all over the marketplace, then their sales dropped significantly consumers didn't like that and so like at the end of the day this isn't this isn't this shouldn't be like uh like a news flash i feel like when i say like people need to meet businesses are in it for money this isn't like an evil thing this is just (laughs) the the way 
our systems allow businesses to run. And now, like, you know, there is a greater issue with the systems in place that probably should be addressed because the reason that they have to do this is our like structural societal issues, for example, with the GDP, for how corporations can operate within this space. It's not their fault, though. They're operating within the systems that are currently in place. And in this current system, they have to make money. And this is what's working. And nothing is regulating it. This is what consumers want. And so they do it. Now, there are some people, some brands, some science communicators as well, but some like professionals with brands that are kind of like going against the grain, going against what consumers are initially wanting to show them something different. And so... You see, there are like science campaigns. The Ordinary is the best example of this, where they try to put good information out into the marketplace that like everything is chemicals, just so you know. Um, (laughs) Now, with that, there has also been an issue of science washing. Um, (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah. um, But this, like, bandwagon effect is... It's really challenging because it really... the what's behind it is like consumer sentiment drives industry so when consumers want a certain thing then that's what the industry does to leave it on a positive note right knowing what the problem is right knowing what we are up against knowing what systems are not working um for sustainability, knowing um, that there is a lot going on, but also knowing that, yeah, policy is the most important thing. I do believe that knowing the problem um, really helps us break away from those cycles, those bandwagon BS things. Like it really helps us break away from the echo chambers. It really allows us to maybe take the next step forward and, and ask a question rather than just blindly take in um, simple inf- what feels like simple information and ask a question. Isn't it more complicated than that? If we are able to break that cycle um, and really see how these things are working against us and see that policy and voting and all of that is really ultimately the very best thing that we as individuals, the best thing that we can do for sustainability are, are taking the steps, I think that it allows us to kind of shake off of this just really weird cycle, this hamster wheel that we're stuck in. And so while it is bleak now and it can, you know, you can get some anxiety over it, I think just being aware of that allows us to break those cycles. And so maybe it's not the most uplifting, like, ending but it is it's a it's a step forward um into hopefully something that is a little bit more um enlightening something a little bit more transparent something a little bit more open um and we're just able to reject the noise (laughs) that's distracting us so thank you so much for this conversation. This has been absolutely amazing. I would love it if you could um, just maybe share some of your resources, maybe um, if listeners want to dive into this topic even deeper um, and where we can connect with you um, and and learn more from you. I host eSummits and I actually did two now on sustainability. And in the latest one, I gave a presentation that kind of dove into some of my master's research. Uh, so it was a presentation on I think it was called sustainable development in the infodemic. So if you want a lot more information on that, I gave like, I think it was 40 minute, a 40 minute presentation on that. So that's, 
that's up on my blog right now. I also have a, a YouTube channel. I interview interdisciplinary uh, subject matter experts, and I have interviewed many experts within the sustainability space from like, uh, I in interviewed the inventor of um, carbon, or sorry, carbon offsets, uh, which is really cool. I interviewed the, um, the person that I was citing his research, Dr. Adam Ford for Misplaced Conservation. So if you want more on that, you can hear it directly from the people who did that research. Um, yeah, so I have a lot of podcasts on a lot of topics. Many of them are sustainability because that is obviously an interest of mine. Um, I'm very active on Instagram. You can find me at the EcoL. I will also say that Michelle Wong, Lab Muffin Beauty Science, and I just launched a joint business called, uh, it's a social enterprise called Beauty SciComm. You can find that at beautysciecom.com, where we are doing a lot of things, but some of that includes a media center um, to put out accurate information from relevant experts within the cosmetic sector and also to address some of the headlines. So you can find more on the website. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And I am so sorry for the doom and gloom. Maybe like a positive note for me, a take home is like, yeah, vote, get involved with like policy and all of that. Be at the table, have a seat at the table. Um, but also if you want to have a greener beauty routine, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Just purchase less. You don't need all that stuff. Uh, whatever you're using, the best product is the one that you like also because you're more likely to finish the product. So like, it mm. just is a shame when people buy these products that they think is going to be more eco-friendly and then they just throw it away because it doesn't work for them. So just like buy the products that you like, use all of it don't buy that much. And then also like another like suggestion is like contact your municipal waste management to figure out what's recycled in your region. And also when you go and recycle the packaging, like clean it out. <laughs> My take homes. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated if you don't want it to be. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for being here. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Amazing. What a fantastic conversation. So much to think over and really marinate on, right? I have linked all of Jen's resources in the show notes so you can dive in deeper if you want to go further with this conversation, and I truly hope that you will. If you're loving Unpacking Beauty so far, I would love it if you would take a moment to share some love and show your support. One of the best ways you can do besides just listening or watching what you've already done, thank you so much. If you know somebody who would love this conversation, please share it with your communities on social media. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure that you're following the show and you rate it with stars. If you have a few moments and you're on Apple Podcasts, please, I would be so honored if you would write a review. Not only does it help new listeners find the show and access this information, it also helps to show potential guests that this show is making an impact. 
And I've got some great episodes coming up for you. But if there's a question you'd like to see unpacked in upcoming episodes of Unpacking Beauty, let me know. If you're listening right now on Spotify, you can answer the Q&A or you can just follow the link in the show notes to leave me a voicemail. If you're watching on YouTube, drop your suggestions in the comments or follow the link in the description box to leave me a voicemail. Thank you so much for being here with me today, and I'll see you in the next episode of Unpacking Beauty coming out in two weeks. Talk to you soon.